all please give a very warm welcome to the men that make the saga thing possible, John and Andy. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for having us come and speak to you this evening. Uh, I'm John Sexton. And I'm Andy Fringer. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Saga Thing, where we mainly just do long form, very long form, sometimes discussions of the Icelandic sagas. Uh, and sometimes we answer questions about the world of the sagas. And today we're going to be trying to answer a fairly big one. Um, as many of you no doubt already know, the Icelandic sagas, they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Um, but the text that we're interested in today, um, they are the sagas of Icelanders or the family sagas. These are mostly the stories of families that immigrated to Iceland in the 9th century or thereabouts, uh, mostly from Norway, and then the lives that they tried to build for themselves on this new island. That's right. And if you're already familiar with the sagas of the Icelanders, then you know that the protagonists of these stories, they don't just kind of arrive in Iceland and build their farmsteads and then tend cattle for the rest of their lives. Right. Uh, well, not the ones who get sagas written about them. No, they're, yeah. those are the boring people. Um, one of the common motifs that we see happening with these stories is that the protagonists start to get a little bit restless in Iceland, and then they're going to journey. They go journeying abroad, and they often go to other places in Scandinavia. Most of the action takes place in Iceland and Norway, but they'll make their way around. They'll travel to Denmark, or they'll travel to Sweden. Yes, rarely do they travel to Sweden, though. The Swedes are often portrayed in the sagas as a kind of suspicious and unruly bunch. Uh, that's in the sagas. Uh, and so an Icelander has to be on his toes when encountering Swedes. Only in the sagas. Let's be only in the sagas. Of course, Swedes are lovely people. Uh, my wife is half Swedish, and her family is full of wonderful Swedes. I have no problem with Swedes. Yeah, good save. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, um, now, the world of the sagas isn't limited to medieval Scandinavia. Uh, saga characters end up traveling all over the place. And so here's a very familiar map of all the different places that they both traded with and attacked. So the Vikings kind of have an interesting way of doing that. Um, they like to stop and get involved in local affairs. If you read the sagas, you'll see them getting involved in uh, local affairs in Scotland, in Ireland, and England. And sometimes they even end up in major battles, like the Battle of Clontarf and uh, the Battle of Brunanburh. And they'll often travel even farther afield, ending up on pilgrimages to Rome, uh, or uh, working in the Varangian Guard down in Constantinople, uh, fighting for the Byzantine emperors. Yeah. So you all know that the world of the sagas was very big. Tonight we're going to be talking about just how big that world really was. Mm -hmm. Tonight we're talking about a group of Scandinavian Vikings who sailed to Greenland and then into the New World, nearly 500 years ahead of Christopher Columbus. And now as we explore just how big the world of the Vikings really was, we're going to talk about the efforts of people in the United States, and especially uh, here in New England, to find local evidence for the settlement uh, of Viking explorers in the New World. Uh, this is also the story of how a few anonymous Icelandic writers and a few 19th century scholars and a baking powder magnate and an American transcendentalist poet and a pair of Norwegian archaeologist explorers collectively work to tell and to change that story. Yeah, but we should start with a simple caveat. We're not here to make a definitive statement for or against the presence of Vikings in Massachusetts. Really? I feel like we can be fairly definitive about that. Yeah, you can be fairly definitive about that because you live here. I'm a guest from the <laughs> University of Mississippi, and I want these people to like me, so it's right. quite possible that. You insulted the Swedes no, in like I the didn't. first two minutes. I didn't. I said the sagas portray them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but this is a question of how far the Vikings actually explored during their time in North America. Um, and that question is actually very fraught with controversy, and solid evidence is kind of hard to come by. That doesn't stop anyone from insisting that it happened, though. Right. There have been a lot of claims that are rather difficult to support, but that's not important. I think what's important tonight is that we're interested in the history of the people who tried to find where the Viking settlements were in the New World. Right. So, okay, so to frame the discussion like that, we first need to examine the evidence that those settlement hunters have mostly relied on, which is the medieval chronicles and sagas and histories that talk about the presence of Scandinavians in North America. So first of all, how familiar are you with the sagas that cover the Vinland voyages? Have, have you read the Vinland sagas? Some of you? Show of hands if you read like Greenlander saga or something. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, okay, so we're going to just, just hit the highlights for now. Uh, the chief sources we're going to be relying on here are two sagas, uh, the saga of Eric the Red and the saga of the Greenlanders. Yes. Now, these are our best written sources for the Viking exploration of North America. But the big question is, are they reliable sources? That's, that's a hard one to answer. Uh, the problem here is that both of the sagas tell the same story, but in completely different ways. 
they, those differences have a lot to do with the politics and the interests of the two authors. Yeah, the differences between these two stories is mostly a matter of emphasis for the most part, but they also feature different and sometimes contradictory versions of the same story. And as you read both of these stories, you'll find that some of the same characters that appear in both sagas are treated very, very differently. So while the basic outline of the story is the same in both, um, once you get into the details, you'll find that they're actually quite different. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, I'm going to explain the story as quickly as I can, and you just jump in with embellishments. Is that all right? That's how we do. Okay. Uh, so the basics of the story are this. A man named Eric the Red is outlawed from Norway, and then subsequently outlawed from Iceland for a series of killings. Yes, he's not a good neighbor. No. Uh, now, the problem is that Iceland is about as far as you can go at this point. And so once you've been outlawed from there, it's not really clear where you're supposed to go next. I think one could go to Sweden. It's a lovely place. That's, that's an option. <laughs> Uh, Eric and his family choose instead to go west. Yes, going west, life is peaceful there. Yes, lots of open air, mm -hmm. uh, lots of water. Uh, they go west and they end up in Greenland, where Eric explores around a bit and names most of the landscape after himself. Yeah. Uh, he finds an island, which he calls Eriksi, mm -hmm. uh, then a fjord, which he calls Eriksfjord, and then some other islands, which he calls Eriksholmar. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, the strategy is kill a bunch of people, get kicked out, kill another bunch of people, get kicked out. Yeah. I'm going to go a place and I'll name everything after myself, right. uh, and then I won't get kicked out anymore. Right, well, it's hard to kick you out of the place you named. Uh, Especially oh, when there's <laughs> nobody else there. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it turns out that the story isn't really about Eric. This pretty much is the extent of his contribution to our story. Uh, it's actually about his kids. Uh, Eric has four children, um, three sons named Leif, Thorvald, and Thorsten and a daughter named Freydis. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if we shuffle the two sagas, Eric's saga and the saga of the Greenlanders, if we shuffle those together, we find that all four of Eric's kids made, or at least attempted, a voyage to this place west of Greenland. Uh, Leif, sometimes called Leif the Lucky, is the most famous of the group because he's the one who is usually credited with finding and naming this place, which he named Vinland. Yes, so Vinland is actually the third place that Leif named. Right. Uh, Leif was on a voyage from Norway to Greenland when he got a bit lost, which is kind of how Iceland was discovered in the first place, mm -hmm. and I think probably how Greenland was discovered. There's a lot of open space. There is, and the storms in the, in the sea are, are very dangerous, and they'll blow people off course. Um, but anyway, he comes across three different lands on his voyage. The first place that he goes is uh, this one right here, and it, he sees that it is covered with flat, it's a flat, rocky land, and so he names it Heluland. And Leaf is not a creative type. Heluland means flat rock land. Right. So, yeah. The second land that he uh, saw was heavily forested. And so he called that one Markland, or woodland. Not creative. Not creative at all. But then he found a third land, which seemed to be the most inviting and most hospitable of all those lands. And he named this one Vinland. Which means? Well, it, it means Vineland. Or maybe it means meadowland. Okay. Or maybe it means wa wine land or berry land or pasture land or now I, he gets creative is what you're telling me. Yeah. 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 Right. There's a there's a problem with <laughs> the etymology of this particular word. Um Wien, Wienland. What does Wien mean? And even medieval writers weren't always sure which kind of Wien uh, was being referenced. Which is why we get a story in the Greenlanders saga that tries to explain this name. So in this saga, Leif's crew of men are exploring this exciting new land uh, and enjoying all of its natural bounty when one of the crew, a German man named Türkir, goes missing. Uh, he's wandered off before, but this time he doesn't return right away. And so Leif sets up a search party to track him down, but just as they're about to leave camp, Turker comes staggering back in. He's disheveled, he's red-faced, and he's speaking wildly in a language they don't understand. And it turns out he's speaking German. Right. He, well, he is German, right. Uh, yeah, Vikings' ship's crews were often multinational. Norse would have been a kind of lingua franca for the sailors aboard ship. Uh, but Turker has reverted to speaking German for some reason. The reason is that he's drunk and he's forgotten his Norse. Right. Uh, yeah, when he sobers up, he remembers that he should be speaking Norse to these people. And that's when he explains, I have something to tell you, something exciting. I have found Vinvith and Vinbear. Okay, so Vinvith and Vinbear. It's important that we think about what he's kind of found separately from how it usually gets translated. We always fixate on the translations, but, um, and the translation for this is usually uh, grapevines and grapes because 
we got to think about it. It's not actually what he's saying. Right. No, exactly. The, the words literally mean something like wineberry creepers and wineberries. Yeah. And what it comes down to is that this account and other ones like it, they're trying to fit the story to the name of the place that they know of as Vinland. In other words, people have been trying to figure out what this name means for a very, very long time. Right, so let's accept this account for the moment. It's still relevant to ask what exactly Turkir means and what he was brewing up in this secret still that he's apparently built out in the woods. The idea that it had to be grapes came from assumptions on the part of other Europeans. Uh, but American wild grapes would make terrible wine, right? Uh, American wild grapes are kind of famous for not really making very good wine. Uh, but the, the fact that Turkir is German and the fact that Leif is Icelandic means that they probably had a much looser definition of what constitutes a wine berry than, say, a Mediterranean or French author might. Yeah, so you're thinking about fruit berries. Right. right. So uh, all sorts of berries and other fruit can be used to make wine. And there's a tradition, still kept up in many Scandinavian communities, of making wine from essentially any wild berry that you can find. All right. So what about the other meaning of Vinland, the whole meadowland? Let's keep that one up in the air for now. Uh, what about the other trips to Vinland? Other trips to Vinland, yeah, I can do that. Um, so the second trip is led by Thorvald Eriksson, uh, Leif's brother. Now Thorvald initiated some limited trading with the native peoples of Vinland. Right, we haven't talked about them yet. Yes, yes. Uh, these are the Skrælingar, the Skrælings, um, and they're pretty clearly indigenous peoples of North America. This contact between the Vikings and the Skrælings is actually a tremendously important moment in human history. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting. This is the first record that we have of direct contact between human beings who began spreading in opposite directions around the world tens of thousands of years ago. This is the moment, this isn't a photograph, but <laughs> in your imagination, this is the moment when humanity completed this, this long process of encircling the world. It's a beautiful moment. And how'd that go? It didn't go well. They started killing each other yeah. very, uh, very, very quickly. It's very disappointing. Yeah, actually, how badly it went kind of depends on which version of the saga you're reading. In Eric's saga, for example, the first contact is made by Thorvald's friend, Thorfinn Karlsefni. And it goes well at first. At they first. spend some time trading goods with the Skrælings, uh, and then suddenly a bull that is owned by Thorfinn runs through the meeting, and the Skrælings assume that they're being attacked by this strange creature. Uh, that leads to a chaotic battle during which Thorvald was killed by a one-legged man, or maybe a uniped. A uniped. A uniped. That's what the text says. Actually, the text calls him both a uniped and a one-legged man, so it's hard to be certain about what the author is actually trying to convey here. It's either a man with one leg or a one-legged man. <laughs> and what's the difference exactly? There's a big difference, right? So if he, it's either a one, it's either a uniped, right? right? This is a monstrous race that's described in medieval travel narratives, very fantastic. And the other is just a, a guy who lost his leg. Right. But he's doing well. But I think Eric's saga, it seems likely, is indulging in a bit of mythologizing here, yes. which is actually something that a lot of the saga does. Uh, the Greenlander saga is a bit more cynical. Uh, it says that Thorvald's men found a group of nine Skrælings asleep under their canoes uh, and killed eight of them immediately. But the yeah. ninth escaped and then came back with reinforcements. Uh, and in a bit of poetic justice, Thorvald is then killed by an arrow shot while he's hiding under his own ship. Mm -hmm. All right. So the voyage didn't end well either way. No, it's, well, it's better than the next one. Um, the, the rest of Thorvald's crew returns to Greenland, but his brother Thorsten is annoyed that they left the body behind in Vinland. Uh, so he sails out the following year to bring Thorvald's remains back home. And that goes really spectacularly wrong. Uh, Thorsten gets off course and spends the entire summer and fall sailing around the North Atlantic. At one point in this attempt to go from Greenland to North America, he ends up in Ireland. It, it goes really badly. Um, and so he eventually uh, ends up camping out for the winter on the other side of Greenland without ever having spotted Vinland. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a plague that winter, and Thorsten and most of his men die in that plague. So that didn't turn out so good. No. No. Great. So Leif the Lucky survived Vinland. Mm -hmm. Thorvald died there, and Thorsten died trying to get there. Yep. But John, we've got another... Uh, Eric's child that we can talk about. Freydis. Freydis, yes. Freydis, Eric's daughter, is either a, an amazing and heroic shield maiden of the Vikings or a mass murderer. Take your pick. 
It really depends on which yeah. version of the saga you read. This is one of the fundamental differences between these two sagas. Uh, Eric's saga is focused on a number of things, uh, but the three things that most occupy the narrative are the conversion of the North to Christianity, which we aren't really addressing here today, the role of the Greenland settlement in the Vinland story, and the centrality of women's experiences to that history. Yeah. The focus on the Greenland settlement is the only real common preoccupation of both texts. Yeah. Uh, the Greenlander saga is focused on the Ericsson's claim to the Vinland settlement, trying to claim that if we go back to this territory, we, we own it all, right? Um, it's much less interested in the conversion, and it's actually actively working against the idea of powerful and active women. Right, so Eric's saga is partly the saga of a woman named Gudrith Thorbjarnadotter. Uh, she's first married to Thorsten Eriksson, and then she's married to Thorfinn Karlsefni. In the Greenlander saga, Gudrith is a tertiary figure whose only real important moment comes when she gives birth to, in the New World to a boy named Snorri, uh, which makes uh, Snorri the first European born in the New World. Uh, but in Eric's saga, she's impressive in numerous ways. Uh, she's knowledgeable about both pagan and Christian practice, uh, she survives famine and violence in both Greenland and in the New World, uh, and she even faces down the undead corpse of her first husband. That's impressive. It is. And Freydis' story is also very different in the two sagas. Yes. In Eric's saga, Freydis is eight months pregnant in Vinland when the Skraelings attack. Now, most of the would-be Vinland settlers, they're not warriors. Right. They tend to be laborers and sailors and farmers who are looking to make a new fortune for themselves. This is an opportunity. It's why they've come on the journey. They're not prepared or even interested in a pitched battle against natives. Right. So when the Skraelings attack, the Scandinavian response is mostly panic. Uh, they run around looking for cover. Uh, Freydis is one of the few people there who actually tries to fight back. And it's a fairly impressive moment in the yes. saga. First, she yells at the Vikings. Why do you flee such miserable foes like these? Men like you should be killing their enemies. Like sheep, you are cowards. And when they ignore her, she grabs a sword that's lying next to a dead Viking. She rips her shirt open and slaps the sword against her bare chest as she stands there bellowing at the Skraelings. And the Skraelings are terrified and they run away. I'm terrified. <laughs> I know. That, that uh, recreation right there is the, one of the more frightening things. This is that, from the Saga Museum in Reykjavik. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but the point is that in Eric's saga, Freydis is a capable, strong-willed, and she's as much of a warrior as her brothers. Yeah, uh, more than some of her brothers, yeah. actually. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the image of her bearing one breast is, uh, against the Skraelings is meant to evoke kind of an Amazonian warrior imagery. Right, right. and that, that fits with a lot of other kind of Amazon depictions. But mm -hmm. that's in Eric's saga. In the Greenlander saga, which, as we said, works to remove focus from the female figures, uh, Freydis, that's where she becomes a mass murderer. Yeah, it's very different. It's a little bit different. In this version, Freydis leads an expedition to Vinland with her husband, Thorvard, and two Icelandic brothers whose names are Helgi and Finboy. They bring two ships, each with about 30 people on board. But Freydis, while they're there in, in Vinland, decides that she would like to have that other ship for herself. And so she invents a story about those brothers um, teasing her, threatening her, treating her disrespectfully. And so she goads her husband and his followers into attacking and capturing that entire Icelandic crew while they're sleeping. And at Freydis' command, all 30 of those men are killed while tied up and helpless. But her husband and his men refuse to kill five women who are among those prisoners. And so without missing a beat, Freydis just says, hand me the axe. And then she chops the five women to death. It's, it's pretty grim. Uh, oddly, that story does match up with something in Eric's saga. Uh, a ship's crew is lost at sea when a woodworm affects their ship and they sort of, they, it collapses into the ocean. Uh, so both sagas do contain a memory of a lost crew. Uh, but in Eric's saga, it's portrayed as a tragic consequence of the sort of adventure of oceanic exploration, where in Greenlander's saga, it's folded into the broader misogyny of the text. Yeah. And I think that about covers it in terms of a yeah. summary of those two yeah. sagas. I think right? this, is, this is obviously a very brief trawl through the sagas, yeah. uh, but it gives us some things to work with. So our list. Uh, when the children of Eric the Red and their companions were visiting Vinland, they were in a place where timber was plentiful, wine berries were everywhere. We haven't quite worked out what those are yet. The indigenous people were nearby, but not numerous, not in huge numbers. Uh, they left at least one body behind, and the latitude was slightly further south than Greenland. 
Yeah, and it was a place that they could return to multiple times. Yes. It's not hard to get to, and they know how to get there. Now, all that comes from the sagas themselves. Yeah. Um, there's also evidence if we look outside the two sagas, but it doesn't really add much to what we've already got. There are quite a few references to voyages like this in other texts, and the earliest we know of is Adam of Bremen. Now, Adam wrote in the late 11th century that many had found Vinland. Right, so that suggests that word has spread quickly because Adam of Bremen is writing in about 1070 or 1080, uh, only decades after the, the explorations are supposed to have taken place, and he's mentioning very matter-of-factly that the Vinland settlement existed and was visited more than once. Mm -hmm. And he knows about Vinland. Yeah. He knows that it exists, at least. Mm -hmm. But some of Adam's account is, I think, a bit more fanciful. He describes Vinland as a place where, where grains grow freely for the harvesting and wine-producing grapes are growing everywhere and fairies are dancing. He doesn't mention it fairies, sounds, no. but he it might. It does sound know. pretty good, though. It sounds Edenic, doesn't it? Edenic is good. Edenic is good, but yes. it's a fantasy. Yes, no, it is. It's a fantasy. The reality, or at least the descriptions in the saga, uh, clearly show a more complicated trip than that. Right. So Adam is writing in Germany. What yeah. else do we have? So, well, the sagas aren't really the earliest accounts. Remember, the sagas that we're talking about are written in the 13th century. Uh, the first Icelandic reference is from the 12th century, about 1130 AD, in the book. The author says that the natives of Greenland were kin to the Skrælings of Vinland. So there's an awareness of native populations, indigenous populations in both Greenland and this place they're calling Vinland. And Skrælings is the usual Old Norse term for the natives of Vinland. And after that, there are a large number of further references in other Icelandic texts. References to Vinland are in Lannamabok, in Olaf's saga, Erbidja's saga, Kristni's saga, and Heimskringla. So at some point, these stories became part of the cultural memory. Yeah. Uh, there are minor figures in several other sagas as well who are linked back to the Vinland settlement. Uh, Snorri Thorfinnsson, the baby who we mentioned earlier, uh, grows up to be an important figure in 11th century Iceland. He establishes one of the first uh, major churches there. Uh, and there's a sailor who apparently was uh, a member of one or more of the Ericsson voyages who gets called Thorhall the Vinlander in Greta's saga. Now, there are a handful of other references outside of the Germanic world as well. Um, so, in the 12th century, there's, there's an offhand reference to Thorfinn Karlsefni's trip to Vinland, and that's included in a travel narrative that's actually about going in the opposite direction. Uh, they're going to Jerusalem. Right, so this is pretty widely known stuff in the Middle Ages, in other words. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned this before in the podcast, but you really have to think that this was the kind of information that people like Columbus were hearing well before 1492. Yeah, uh, right. Now, now those uh, sagas and histories are being written in the middle to late Middle Ages, uh, so it's pretty widely accepted around Europe that Leif and Freitas and Thorfinn and their crews had established a beachhead in a largely unknown land. Unknown to them. I mean, obviously very well known to the Skraelings who kicked them out. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the first question that we should probably deal with as we're kind of starting to look at these, these maps and think about travels to the New World, uh, I think we should address uh, that, that Columbus question, you know? Was Columbus the first European to uh, hit the New World? I think everyone in this room knows. Uh, I think well, we're going to go into this? All right. Yeah, why not? Uh, briefly. It better be briefly. This could be a very long story. So 60-second version is that, yes, there are examples of mostly ancient peoples who created flat representations of, of the Earth. But people in the ancient and medieval worlds definitely knew that the, the Earth was round. Definitely knew that. I, I, my students get tired of hearing me say this. They definitely knew that. Yeah. And you can look at writers and artists from almost any century in recorded history and you find evidence for round Earth, right? So I hope there are no flat Earthers in the room here. Uh, ancient Greeks knew that the Earth was round. Pythagoras talked about the round Earth in the 6th century BC, and scholar Aristosthenes, uh, he made a fairly accurate calculation of the circumference of the Earth back in the 3rd century. And my, my favorite examples come from the Middle Ages. In the 13th century, Johannes Don Sacrobosco wrote a book called De Sphera Mundi, On the Sphere of the World. It even came with these helpful woodcuts, like the one you see up there, to explain how you could use the evidence of your own eyes to demonstrate that the Earth was round. Uh, that as you watch a ship go over the horizon, you aren't watching it sink, you're watching it cross the horizon. Uh, that was that. Most people accepted that the Earth was round because everybody who knew math or philosophy had said so. Uh, it really wasn't until the 19th century that anyone began to believe that Europeans had ever thought the Earth was flat. And unfortunately, that was an American's fault. Our bad. Yeah, sorry about that. It was Washington Irving. It was the same guy who wrote Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow. Irving wrote a biography of Christopher Columbus in the 1820s, and he added a scene in here which had never been in previous uh, biographies of Christopher Columbus. And that scene was that Columbus was setting out to prove that the Earth was round. 
while the Catholic, boo, Catholics, uh, not for real, just in this context again, <laughs> the Catholic court of Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, they believed that the world was flat. Now, ultimately, this was just a bit of anti-Catholic rhetoric, uh, and it came from a general belief in the 19th century that the Catholic Church had been anti-science uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, in fact, everyone, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, you name it, uh, they knew the world was round. They knew it was round. Columbus just thought it was much smaller than everybody else did. Yeah, well, he had read a bad map by an Italian map maker named uh, Toscanelli. So the argument was actually Columbus saying, no, 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 Asia is just over there. I can make it. And everyone, including his own crew, saying, no, it's, it's 25,000 miles. The Greeks figured this out. Here, read this book by Aristophanes. So his quote-unquote discovery of the New World, uh, it was a fortunate accident for him because if, it hadn't, if he hadn't hit land when he did, he would have died of starvation right. or dehydration. Or by his crew beating him to death with a book of Greek geometry. Whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's what's going on there. So the end of the Columbus and flat earth digression. The, the point is that people knew a few things about the round earth. And one of the things that most people knew was that the Vikings had been in the New World quite a few centuries ahead of Columbus. Right, but nobody knew where. Columbus whatever his other failings, had a heck of a PR campaign going behind him, uh, where unlike Columbus, the Vikings had been a little cagey about exactly where they'd been. They didn't necessarily want to let everybody know where their fertile timberland was that they were getting all their wood from. Yeah. Uh, so they, they tried not to give you too many details. So where was Vinland? Well, that's the question that people have been spending centuries trying to answer. It's a rhetorical question. But it's a question for us, right. and it was a question for them, right? People have been looking for the solution to this one all over the East Coast of North America for a very, very long time, before the site was actually found. Which it was in 1960 by a husband and wife team from Norway. We'll be getting to them in a bit. Yeah, besides that though, the, there have been attempts to locate the Vinland settlement all over the Northeast. Uh, we can start with the Vinland map, which we had up before. Um, this was discovered in the 1950s by a book dealer named Enzo Ferrajoli. Now Ferrajoli found this wonderful map in a book called The Tartar Relation, which he later sold to an American book dealer who gave it to his university, and that was Yale University. Yale then excitedly announced that they had this amazing period-specific map of the Viking world, and that Viking map includes Vinland. And you can see the map here. Can you, can you yes. do pointy things? Uh, yeah, so there's uh, Iceland, there's Vinland, uh, Greenland, right, all kind of up the corner there. Uh, right, uh, but then the map just keeps going, right? It also includes the Mediterranean, Africa, Europe, uh, Asia. It, it, just, it just kind of covers everything. It's quite a piece of work. Yeah, um, it's an amazing find. Um, it, it's so specific and it's so beautiful and it looks just right. It's, it's, almost, it's almost too good to be true. Almost. Now, people got suspicious of this map pretty quickly. That's partly because no one could really trace the map's existence any further back than the guy who sold it for a lot of money. Right. Enzo Ferrazzoli. Now, Ferrazzoli had what we could say is a, a spotty reputation. Spotty is charitable. Uh, he actually went to prison shortly after selling this book uh, for his role in stealing manuscripts from the Zaragoza Cathedral Library. And there are other problems with this map as well. For one thing, a spectroscopic uh, analysis proved that the ink that was used to create this map, that ink was actually from the 20th century. And there's also the image itself. So scholars did a kind of reverse Google search image on this thing, and what they found was uh, this is most of these details and the shape of all, it all comes from an 18th century map. Right. And the curious thing about this is that the Vinland map isn't even necessary, evidence-wise. There are actually legitimate surviving medieval and early modern attempts to map out the Vinland voyages. Uh, the problem is that all of, all of those, can you pop those up? Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, so these, uh, these are just two examples. The problem with all of them is that they are based on the sagas. They don't provide any new evidence. They are attempts by readers of the sagas to sketch out a map based on what we learn from reading the sagas. Uh, so the difficulty here is that it isn't a question of whether they landed in the new world, right? With the sagas tell us that much, these maps tell us nothing new. The question was where? Yeah. Um, and there's this place called Norumbega, which is kind of exciting, but we're going we're gonna to come back to right. that. Um, pretty much everyone accepted that the Greenland Vikings did make it to the New World. Right. And the, the question was, yeah. wasn't and isn't whether they landed, it's where. Right, right. So this is where the evidence starts to dry up. Uh, and so people searching for the settlement 
really had to replace evidence with what we'll call enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, yeah. There was a lot of enthusiasm about the idea of where the Vikings actually settled. Um, and there are various reasons for that enthusiasm over the years. From anti-Catholic sentiment, to sectarian ethnic pride, to honest curiosity, to flat out hoaxes like we saw with the map. And for their various reasons, people starting from the 18th century onward have mined the Vinland sagas for clues as to where specifically the Eriksons and their crews actually were. I want to bring us back to the sagas for a second because uh, that's where we're going to get one of our early pieces of evidence. We mentioned that one of the Eriksson brothers, Thorvald, died in the New World, yes. a casualty of the violence that broke out between Vikings and Skraelings. Thorvald was killed by that single arrow shot. Mm -hmm. uh, and researchers have taken Thorvald's last words as an important clue in establishing the location of the Vinland settlement. Uh, Andy, do you know the last words? Do I know, know his last words, they're yes. very memorable. He gets hit by the arrow in the belly and he's been eating so well in Vinland because it's such a productive area. And he says, oh, that hit a fat belly. That's it. It's not a lot of it's not a lot to go on for. You're, you're quoting from the wrong saga. You're quoting from Eric the Red saga. Uh, you wanted the other the one. Greenland saga. Is the yeah, one. that one yes. is actually a little more specific. He says in that one, in very dramatic, I'm dying fashion, this wound will be my death. You should flee for home as soon as possible, but take me to the Cape, where I thought to build a good farm. You should bury me there and mark my grave with crosses at head and foot, and that spot shall be called Crossanes. Right, see, now we have something. We know, it's not much. It's not much. But Thorvald was buried on a cape or a peninsula in a spot with good farmland. It's so something. It's really not, not anything. <laughs> it isn't. Uh, but it's something, and we'll work with it. It's enough that a lot of places up and down the New England yeah. coast have made a bid for being the last resting place of Thorvald Eriksson, and therefore the location of Vinland. Uh, in Maine, the people of Cape Nettick have claimed Thorvald uh, and have tried to map the Vinland map onto their coastline. Uh, in Gloucester, uh, there used to be a Thorvald Hotel uh, uh, on Cape Ann, right by the spot claimed for Thorvald's grave. Uh, and not too far from here in Duxbury, uh, there's even a small headland which the locals named Crossaness in an attempt to kind of retcon their way into being the location of Vinland. Yeah, so this list just keeps going. Multiple other places in Massachusetts have made a similar case for being the home of Crossaness and Thorvald's grave. You see it in Lynn, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Boston, but also Newport, Rhode Island, and points as far south as Virginia, and as far inland as Minnesota. They've all laid claim to, <laughs> there's no surprise there, right? Uh, they've all laid claim to Thorvald's remains being there. Now, it is reasonable to assume that Thorvald's body was buried locally to Vinland, uh, although it's been pointed out by uh, Marianne Lepianka that there was a place called Crossaness by the spot in Iceland where Thorvald grew up, and that he might have been asking to be brought home for burial. It's possible. It's a long way to carry that body. It is a long way. And of course, the sagas tell us that his body wasn't brought home because uh, his brother Thorsten, remember, was trying to recover his remains when he made that disastrous trip around the Atlantic. Yeah, but even if we say that Thorvald's remains remained in Vinland, we're talking about a hasty burial of a single person over a thousand years ago. How do you no, find these, that? These claims are based on little more than local legend. Uh, but one of them, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, has a far more committed history with the Vinland story. Uh, to understand this argument, it's important to start from the belief uh, that the main Vinland settlement was at Boar's Head, which is a spot about 15 miles south of Portsmouth. Uh, understand there's no actual evidence that that was the case. It's just that it's been repeated often enough in local guidebooks that it's taken on something of a life of its own. Yeah, and it's also important to understand just how popular this idea of Viking visitors in New England was in the 1800s. Places like Cape Nettick or Portsmouth or Duxbury were really in competition to be the first to make a creditable claim for a Viking past. Uh, the reasons that Vikings were so popular uh, are a little complicated to go into, but the upshot is that medieval stories in general were popular in the late 19th century, and the Vikings, well, they were just the right combination of romantic and dangerous and Germanic to appeal to the Victorian age. Right, and, the, and Portsmouth's lead Viking enthusiast was a judge. His name was uh, Charles A. Lamprey, uh, who, and I know how this is going to sound, but Judge Lamprey happened to find on his family's land a boulder with carvings made by what he argued must have been Vikings. And it just happened to be on his family land, right? I said I knew how it would sound. It looks like an angry cat it got to that <laughs> thing. Like. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, Judge Lamprey identified the rock as marking the final resting place of Thorvald. Thorvald's rock, as it came to be known, was a sensation in the town. Two local roads were renamed Thorvald Street and Viking Road. Plans were drawn up for a Viking park to accommodate the anticipated flood of visitors. So Judge Lamprey clearly was not shy about the economic possibilities for the area if they could lay claim to a Viking past. Right. In his paper that was announcing the rock's discovery, the judge added, it is a good spot, good enough for millionaires, and a choice spot for the businessman who loves and enjoys nature in his summer months. This Come is a man who knew the value of a tourist attraction. Yes. Uh, well, he did get some attention. Uh, the rock had to be placed in a protective cage after a Massachusetts man attempted to steal it in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's like, look at the... It, Rocks are heavy. <laughs> how, how and why would you even bother? I would get a good look at that rock and I'd be like, I, I made a mistake. There's no reason. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there's another problem, which is that the, of course, if you cart it away, you still don't change the fact of it being found on that spot right. and theoretically the location of Thorvald's grave. Yeah. But given that there really was no independent evidence apart from the rock, removing it might have been a, a way of invalidating the claim anyway. So it was some kind of plan, maybe a cunning plan. Marginally cunning. Barely. Uh, incidentally, Thorvald's Rock is still around. Uh, it's on the grounds of the Hampton Historical Society's Tuck Museum. And as you can see here, it is now protected from any further nefarious Massachusetts night thieves. Uh, and we should be clear that this has been thoroughly debunked. I mean, the carvings were almost certainly the work of Judge Lamprey. Yeah. But while we're on the subject of carved boulders in the area, we need to talk about Dighton Rock. Oh, yes. Uh, how many of you have uh, visited Dighton Rock or have been near the Dighton? No, nobody. Really? Oh, you really should check it out. We're going uh, to try to go tomorrow. So if you right. want to caravan with us, <laughs> we're going to storm um, the place. Yeah, it's, uh, it's down 495. Uh, it's, in, it's in Dighton, Beverly. Uh, Dighton Rock isn't just another Thorvald grave marker. Uh, this is a large sandstone boulder with a series of obviously deliberate lines and symbols carved onto its face. Yes, and we've got some images here of some rather dapper gents lounging on top. Uh, John and I are going to get our top hats out tomorrow. <laughs> I'm and we're, very excited. We're, we're going to check it out. Uh, the carvings have been artificially enhanced here so that we can see them. Um, it was one of the things that he did when taking photographs back then, but uh, they're pretty faded on the actual rocks. So if you go see it, it's not going to be as as obvious as that. And now to be clear, the difference here is that these carvings are legitimately old. Uh, they've been mentioned as far back as the 17th century. In 1680, John Danforth drew a copy of the carvings for the British Museum. In 1690, Cotton Mather lists it among his wonderful works of God. He wrote a book on this. Uh, and he calls this a mighty rock, very deeply engraved. No man alive knows how or when. The mystery. It's very cool. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we should also note that, uh, as far as anyone knows, Cotton Mather never actually went and looked at the rock. No. And that, that is going to be kind of a pattern. Guys yeah. wanting to push a, a theory without ever investigating yeah, the Without ever visiting object. the rock. It's yeah. kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so in the centuries since Cotton Mather, several theories about the origin and meaning of Dighton Rock uh, have been put forward. The most likely explanation is that it was indigenous teenagers. Uh, but. Uh, Gavin Menzies has proposed 15th century Chinese explorers leaving the carvings. Uh, Ezra Stiles has argued that ancient Phoenicians made their way to Dighton. Uh, Edmund Delabar believed the carvings were made by a Portuguese explorer named Miguel Cortreal, and that they read, I, Miguel Cortreal, 1511, in this place, by the will of God, I became a chief of the Indians. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't, it must be on the back. It's, it's got to be on the back of that, yeah. So let's just take a second look at those carvings. Um, it's pretty clear that people kind of see what they want to see in those right. marks. And that brings us to Carl Robin. Yes. Carl Christian Robin was a 19th century Danish scholar who was an early booster for the idea that the Viking settlement could be found somewhere in the Americas, probably around here. Right. He made a practice of investigating reports of carvings like these, like these ones of Dighting Rock. And in 1829, he wrote to the Rhode Island Historical Society asking them to send him copies of any interesting inscriptions in the area. Over the next five or six years, they sent several accounts and drawings of Dighton Rock, including what's now known as the Historical Society drawing, which if you look carefully, seems to show some X's and the letters O-R-F-I-N-Z in the center of the inscription. So let's see if we got this set up correctly. Robin sees this sketch, but he's never actually seen the rock himself. Uh, correct, yeah. Um, he's, he's written a letter 
that essentially says, have you by any chance got any carved rocks in the area that indicate a possible Viking visitation? And he sent this request to a specific group, right? Mm -hmm. And this specific group, they've got a, they're in a low-key race to uh, claim that they've got the Vikings before any other community. Yeah, that doesn't seem like good scholarship to me. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so it's maybe not surprising that the sketch does a bit of filling in of the detail that actually isn't visible on the rock itself. Uh, And on the basis of that sketch, Ravan wrote a paper in 1837 announcing that Dighton Rock must be recognized as the landing place of Vinland. And as he put it, and I'm, I'm going to give you an extended quote here because I think it's worth it. One clearly sees the famed ship of Thorfinn Karlsefni as he sets out for Vinland a wind vane attached to the mast. The name of Thorfinn and the Roman numerals CXXXI, for he had 150 men with him, are easily seen. Thorfinn's wife Gudrid, seated on the shore, holds in her hand the key of their dwelling. Besides her stands their son Snorri, born in America. A cockerel crowing completes a scene of domestic peace, as do the shield and helmet left at rest. Then suddenly war is indicated. Thorfinn seizes his shield and protects himself against the Skraelings, who violently assault the Scandinavians with bow and arrow and clubs, and moreover with a military machine, which the sagas describe as a ballista. A ballista. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he goes on like that for a while. And <laughs> yep. you can clearly see it's all there. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> that's it, right? I mean, Robin is a legit scholar. We've solved the case. No. No. No, no because this is an example of how wishful or biased thinking can lead even the best of us to false conclusions, right? And that's problematic because Robin's findings convinced generations of people that this was a mm-hmm. Viking rock. Uh, but when Delabar returned to that evidence in the early 20th century, he found something pretty strange. Robin's print of the Dighton uh, carvings was, well, we'll just call it enhanced. Enhanced is a way of saying forged. Yeah. Robin, or someone involved in the project, had added lines to the drawing, uh, to the version that he received from the Rhode Island Society. Mm-hmm. And the added lines, they actually bring out some of the evidence that he claimed to see in the rock. Bring out is a nice way of saying create. Yeah, they're not there. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there are other problems. Uh, first of all, some of you may have spotted that the Roman numerals CXXXI indicate 131, not 150. But Robin anticipated your questions. <laughs> and here's how he explained it. Thorfinn is uh, counted in the number, so that's 131. And then Robin argued uh, that a Viking would naturally be counting in long hundreds. Long hundreds are a Germanic thing in which one counts, instead of uh, by tens, you count by dozens. So a long hundred would be 120, and that somehow gets us to 151, right? Follow? (laughs) Fair enough, but a couple more problems. One, if the carver is counting in long hundreds, he should also be counting in long tens or dozens, by which logic the carving should be something like CXXVII. Yeah, I have no idea how he got that, but, and I have no idea how this all works, to be honest (laughs) with you. I'm not uh, making the argument, right, though. No, it's wrong. I understand. Second, uh, why is a 10th century Viking using the Roman alphabet yes. to write his own name? This is uh, very problematic. <laughs> the runic alphabet of the north was called the Futhark, and it was made entirely of straight lines, specifically to make it easier to carve. You'd think that would be an appealing feature when you're trying to write a story on a rock. Yeah, that would make some sense. And to my knowledge, there's, there's not a lot of evidence of Scandinavians around 1080 using Roman alphabet, right? You'll have to uh, take your argument yeah. up with Carl Robin. Yeah. Uh, we'll find I shall. Him. We'll find him. Uh, so ultimately, Dighton Rock is legitimately an old carving, but the available evidence just doesn't add up to a Viking origin. Yeah. Uh, it's worth checking out, though. We're going to yeah. try to check it out, like I said. Um, but the problem is that we still have these sagas and all those other texts saying that Vinland existed. And even if all those attempts to locate Thorvald's body or Thorfinn's farm fell apart, it doesn't invalidate the textual evidence that we were talking about. And the place that's described in the sagas does bear a superficial resemblance to New England. You're segueing. I can tell when you're segueing. Thank you. The, the point is that people have put a lot of resources, effort, time into this search over many, many years. And we haven't even talked about the king of the 19th century yet, um, the great Evan Horsford. Ah, wonderful. It must be Evan Horsford's fans in this audience, right? Uh, Everyone familiar with Evan Horsford? Fair. Uh, (laughs) uh, Look at him. He's so dapper. He was a fairly famous man in the mid-19th century. He was a chemist and a Harvard professor who invented a new way of leavening breads without yeast. 
Uh, he combined sodium bicarbonate and calcium acid phosphate and got a non-yeast chemical reaction. Added a little bit of cornstarch to keep it from clumping and marketed it as Rumford baking powder. And you probably have that in your cupboard, maybe? It was, uh, his factory was in Rumford in Rhode Island. Yeah. Now, the invention of a fast-rising yeast replacement was a huge development. And because Horsford owned the patent, well, he became extremely rich. It's like the IBM of, of the day. Not, no? No. <laughs> and that money did free him up to pursue other interests, which included growing some really remarkable mutton chop whiskers and developing an amateur fascination with the stories of the Vikings. I approve of both of those hobbies. I know you uh, do. So Horsford's interest in the Vikings was pretty common for the time, as we suggested. He happened to read a book by Rasmus Anderson, who detailed the same evidence that we've given about medieval writers recording the Vinland voyages. Americans and Canadians in the Northeast got very excited about this book, and some of them, like Horsford, did it out of historical interest, while others were doing it out of regional pride or Scandinavian pride or anti-Catholic feeling. Right. There's that again. Um, and Horsford wasn't alone in his pursuit of Viking connections for the region. Lots of prominent Bostonians, including Oliver Wendell Holmes, John Greenleaf Whittier, James Lowell, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow all supported the search for Vinland in Massachusetts. Even the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Alexander Rice, joined the group. It's a big deal. Now, Longfellow in particular had a long interest in this subject. All the way back in 1840, he'd traveled down to Fall River to see a skeleton which had been unearthed there. He wrote a poem about it called The Skeleton in Armor. The poem begins with the skeleton speaking to Longfellow. I was a Viking old, my deeds though manifold. No scald in song has told, no saga taught to thee. It's very dramatic and it goes on for quite a while. Uh, as you can see from this uh, image of Longfellow taking feverish dictation from a smoldering skeleton in an anachronistic Viking helmet, <laughs> he was very taken with this experience. Mm -hmm. So Longfellow, Horsforth, and the others all read Carl Robbins' work on Dighton Rock, as well as Anderson's book. And as a result, they became convinced that Vinland was very nearby. Very nearby, conveniently nearby, in fact. Yeah. Their conclusion was that Leif Erikson had come ashore on the banks of the Charles River. They set themselves up as a committee and they argued that all of the features of the Viking stories, Leif's initial landfall, Thorvald's promontory, the city of Norumbega, all of it, could be found along the Charles River. And they appointed themselves the Committee of the Norseman Memorial, also known as the Scandinavian Memorial Association. And they had two goals. One, purchase Dighton Rock, so as to move it to a Boston-based museum, and then erect a statue to Leif Erikson in Boston. Now, considering the number of important people who were involved in this project, it's surprising that it wasn't immediately successful. Uh, the effort to purchase Dighton Rock came to nothing, mainly because they couldn't figure out who owned it, and so they couldn't figure out who to pay. Uh, and the plan to build a memorial to Leif Erikson was actually uh, resisted strongly by Bostonians, who didn't want to fund the project because, as they pointed out quite reasonably, there wasn't actually any evidence to support the idea that the Boston area was Vinland. Yeah. But a committee like this wasn't going to be stopped by a lack of funds and, and other people discrediting their right. ideas. Uh, we did mention that even Horsford uh, was rather wealthy as a result mm -hmm. of his baking powder fortune. So when Boston wasn't willing to front the money to commemorate its possible but very definite Viking past, Horsford paid for the entire thing by himself. And in 1887, the Horsford-funded statue of Leif Erikson was unveiled in the eastern end of Commonwealth Avenue, and a copy of the statue was also sent to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And both of those statues are available for your viewing pleasure today. Side note, my, uh, my brother-in-law actually tried to climb the Milwaukee copy a couple of years ago no when way. I was out there with him, and the cops ran him off. Why would you have not mentioned that before? It was never relevant before. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing at the time? I, I, were you saying don't climb it, or were you right behind I mean, it? it? There, there may have been a drink. Ah, uh, well, it is, I won't claim total sobriety. Yeah, well, okay. Well, we see the kind of company you keep. You're the kind of company I keep, Andy. Yeah, but, well, that's true. <laughs> you have impeccable taste, Thank John. You. Uh, anyway, the statues to Leaf were just a beginning for Horsford. Uh, he started looking for real evidence of Viking connections in eastern Massachusetts. He funded archaeological digs in Iceland, looking for evidence of cultural exchange between the Icelanders and the local uh, uh, Wampanoag. Uh, the Wampanoag, the Narragansett uh, peoples. He found references in a 12th century text to uh, a trip to, uh, to Vinland by an Icelandic bishop and made the argument that that was for purposes of conversion. Um, he found a, some references to a 14th century timbering concern 
that was going back and forth to Vinland and bringing uh, loads of wood back to, uh, to, to Greenland and to uh, Iceland. Uh, and he slowly started to build up evidence for the Vikings having visited the New World. Yeah. The problem was that no one really ever doubted that the Vikings had come to North America. We've been saying this over and over and over again. But what Horsford wanted was to prove that they'd come to Boston. And so he kept looking, and eventually he found something. He found something. <laughs> yes. Uh, so remember we mentioned earlier that early maps included a legendary city called Norumbega. Well, the word Norumbega is probably an Algonquin word for a regional designation of some kind. It showed up in maps from Europeans learning the word, but not really being sure what it referred to. And there were a few people in the committee for the Norseman's Memorial who became convinced that the name was derived from Norvega, a misrendering of, of Norway. And what he found was some crumbling stone buildings in the woods west of Boston, in Weston, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and he announced that this was almost certainly the remains of Norumbega. Yes, yes. And he really did find some ruins. And we went over there a little while ago and took some, some pictures. Um, yeah, so he, he did find ruins, um, but they're probably colonial era building remains or something. Uh, but Horsford promoted the Norumbega theory um, and wrote a, a really long plaque that describes in detail all the cool stuff that was found in the area with very little evidence to really support right. it. Um, but he had the money to back it up, which suggests that history can be bought. That's kind of an exciting thing. <laughs> So in 1889, he built Norumbega Tower, which is just a few miles up the road in, in Weston. Uh, how many of you have actually gone up the tower, uh, actually visited or climbed it? We actually climbed it today. It was open. Uh, yeah, which I'm yeah, not sure that was allowed run, run or not. Run over there right uh, after this. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, it yeah. wasn't locked. We just went up. It was. Uh, yeah. It, it felt unsafe. No. <laughs> Maybe if I went over there right now, it might I feel mean, The tower is really something. Yeah, it is. And it provided a second link for Horsford arguments, right? He then had a third site commemorated. He commissioned a plaque at a dig site in Cambridge, despite the fact that the archaeological work in that area had only turned up colonial artifacts. But that didn't bother him. He made a plaque. And which you, can, you can see this plaque here. It reads, on this spot in the year 1000, Leif Erikson built his house in Vinland. Uh, Horsford eventually wrote multiple books arguing for uh, his Vinland theories and argued that as many as 10,000 Scandinavians had lived in Vinland in the 11th century uh, or 11th through 14th centuries uh, and that Norumbega was their stronghold. He remained convinced of these conclusions until the end of his life uh, and he even dedicated what remained of his fortune, which wasn't much after building all these things, uh, to the furthering of archaeological studies to prove the location of Vinland. We should say that I mean, Horsford may have been a little over-enthusiastic about the Vikings in Massachusetts, but in other respects, he was fairly impressive. Uh, when he wasn't building monuments on the Charles, he was an advocate for preserving the languages of indigenous Americans, and he actually edited a dictionary on the Onondaga and Algonquin languages. Uh, he also supported higher education, especially for women. Uh, he donated large amounts of money to Wellesley College up the road, and uh, at one point was the uh, leader of the board of directors for Wellesley. That's right. And our final point to make today is that all of these efforts that uh, might seem somewhat ridiculous um, as we go through them, th these efforts to find Vinland, they weren't really entirely pointless. They, they kept this dream alive of finding this location. Mm -hmm. There's still been no proof of, like, tangible proof of Viking forays into New England, but Vinland was and is real. The Greenlanders did make it to a place that they called Vinland, and they did settle there at least for a few years and a few voyages to right. collect timber. Yeah, people like Horsford and Longfellow and Carl Robin and all of them kept interest in the subject alive. Uh, they pushed later generations of scholars to continue searching for meaningful archaeological evidence, if only to prove them wrong. Uh, something that could prove that Leif Erikson and Gudrith Thurbjörnadotter and Thorfinn Karlsefni did find their land across the ocean. And in, in 1960, that evidence was found. Uh, by the husband and wife team of Norwegian archaeologist explorers named Anastina and Helga Ingstad. Now, Anastina was the archaeologist and Helga was the explorer, and they began by throwing out one of the major assumptions about Vinland. We mentioned earlier that one of the other ways of thinking about Vinland, the name, is that it might mean meadowland. Right. And so they tossed out this whole idea of grapevines. Right. Uh, everyone else had been so convinced of that etymology that they'd only looked in places where wild grapes could be found. Uh, and that meant going far, far south of the actual location. Anastina was convinced of this Land of Meadows name, uh, and so she and Helga spent a couple of years looking farther north, much farther north, places where the Greenlanders might have easily sailed across. Uh, and what they eventually found was a small settlement far, 
far north of here on the northern tip of Newfoundland, uh, a place called Lanza Meadow. Uh, and after all those centuries of searching, when the Ingstads came to Lanza Meadow, what they found was a farmer named George Decker who had a few old ruins on his property, which he'd always called that old Indian camp. And it took years to definitively prove that the ruin was actually a Viking settlement. Anasina oversaw the excavations, which eventually turned up Viking-era brooch pins, uh, other materials that came from the Ericssons and the people that uh, came there with them. And in 1978, UNESCO named Lancel Meadows a World Heritage Site, and Anasina and Helga were there to mark the occasion. And she always looks that happy. Yes. Like in every picture I can find of her, she's either very intently working or she's delighted. It's, it's, it's exciting. Uh, so I think that's where our story ends for now. There are still people looking for more settlements up and down the East Coast. And there's reason from the sagas to think that there may have been more than one settlement point, more than one at least uh, point of entry into the new land. Uh, so maybe someday another site will be found. Uh, but for now, even though we can't say the Vikings made it to New England, we know they were in the neighborhood. That's right. Thank you. If anybody has any questions, we're happy to make an attempt at answering them. Yes. We'll do our best. Sir. Yeah. Uh, the statue of Leif on Commonwealth Avenue. Um, regardless of anything else, do you have anything to say about this, the way he's dressed? The way he's dressed. Let <laughs> <laughs> um, me go back to lot, the picture real quick. Right, yeah, please do. Uh, yeah, well. That's very much a 19th century idea about uh, how to dress a Viking. Um, yeah. it's, it's sort of... It's about Straight four, from the stage. Right. Well, it's about 30% it's about what they thought Romans looked like. It's about 40% what they thought medieval people looked like. And it's about 30% what they would dress people like for paintings down the 19th century about the past. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is absolutely no attempt made there to recreate anything accurate. Uh, but, but he has lovely legs. He does. So we can say he does. that. They're very nice. Um, and yeah, the, the, uh, I'm wondering how much of that is the reference to the skirt. Uh, because there is the, uh, this problem of, of uh, Old Norse. The word skirt uh, means shirt. It can mean sort of everything down to the knees. Uh, and because that word uh, already existed as shirt in English, skirt came to only mean the part below the waist. Uh, and this almost feels like somebody took that word skirt and ran with it uh, and said, well, they wore skirts, so. I hope there was more thought in, into it than I, that. <laughs> given, given how the rest of the project went, I'm not uh, sure yeah, there was. Yeah. That's fair, that's fair. Yes, yes please. Uh, how wealthy would someone like Leif Erikson be in the context of Norwegian society? Because they're always like taking their hands with them, but they're always like bringing 50 or 60 unnamed henchmen. Yes, <laughs> right. Yes. Um, that's a really good question. Yeah. I mean. So uh, Eric the Red would have been a reasonably wealthy man when all started out. Um, but I visited his, his home in, um, in Iceland at Erikstader, and it's very small. And one of the things they, they talk about when you visit that, that location is that in general, the Icelandic homes were not as big as the sagas seem to make them out to be. These are, these are men who are struggling to survive, trying very hard, and they work very, very hard. Um, so this idea of wealth, I think there's a distinction between what is represented in the sagas as the Icelanders are trying to position themselves as the nobility of Norway, the individual nobility that stood up for their own independence and fled uh, the tyranny of King Harald. Um, there's a political agenda there for the 13th century Icelanders. Um, how wealthy was Eric? He's wealthy enough to have a ship and he's wealthy enough to be able to travel to these, these locations and, and have men follow him. So I think um, in terms of of men right. of that time, he's doing well for himself. But most of the men on these ships would have expected a share of any profits from right. the voyage. Uh, so he's not necessarily an employer of this many men, so much as he's able to convince this many men that this is gonna be a profitable venture yeah. and that they, they will make their money by coming with him. Uh, but um, The access to the ship is the real key to his, yeah. his wealth. And, and there's a lot of conversation in the sagas in general about who has ownership of a, of a ship. Yeah. And sometimes they split ownership of ships, but it's, it's a really hot commodity to have something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yes. Can you speak a little bit more about the infamous EO map? <laughs> um, I mean, essentially what we can say is that uh, 
this man, Enzo, uh, seems to, Ferrajoli, Ferrajoli. Ferrajoli. I don't know if you're allowed to um, say it like that, though. Uh, so. I, I'm actually Italian, so I'm allowed to. You can say whatever you <laughs> want. Uh, uh, but uh, Enzo's map is, it really does come down to, he took uh, some old parchment that had not been used and more or less just traced them. It's a great idea, uh, though. It's, you know, um, and, you know, until, until you're able to do spectroscopic analysis of ink, right. But that's that's not going to be easy to to un, uncover. Uh, the problem was that his reputation preceded him. People already knew that this man was not necessarily to be trusted. Yeah. Um, his uh, desire is legitimate, but it wasn't so much that he was unaware of the previous maps, the medieval maps, so much as if you could find a sort of medieval map of Mundi for the Vikings, or one that covered the whole world, that would be a new find, and that would be very very valuable. Uh, the fact that he unloads it very quickly on the first book dealer he comes across suggests that he wasn't confident it was going to fly uh, and that he was looking for the quick buck. Uh, but unfortunately, there's not, there's not a lot to say about it as far as legitimate historical work, so much as it's a very interesting example of how the enthusiasm can sort of overtake people's yeah, judgment. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting thing, because even today there are people that look at that map and, and want to take it so seriously um, that they're willing to ignore some of the scientific research that's been done on the map and the comparisons to the, the places he was copying from, because we really, really want it to be true. And, and that's, I think, it, it fits really nicely into this talk about really, really wanting something to be yeah. true that we can't quite prove. Right, you'll find websites that'll take that map and will, and have gone through, I mean, in painstaking detail that really should have been better spent elsewhere. Uh, but they, they've, they've put real work into it, right? They've, they've gone through and they've figured out every place name mentioned in either of the Vinland sagas, and they've found a way to map that on there uh, to say, like, no, this is, this is, this is real. And it's, it's reflecting something real, but it's reflecting a later sort of version of the map. And of course, we know that there's, there's reality to the journey. So if you're drawing something that looks vaguely like the real world, it's going to be able to be mapped on there. Yes. Um, I was wondering, I know this might be difficult to do, but did anyone ever try to look uh, for like a folk memory of Vikings landing from the Native American perspective. I know they probably didn't yeah. write a lot down or they got wiped out or whatever. Um, well, we know uh, one of my colleagues at Bridgewater uh, writes about uh, early, um, early texts that deal with uh, people meeting the Native Americans and talking with them. And, um, and he's, he, he's looking at it from the Native American side, just like right. what you're asking. Um, so there are texts about Native Americans encountering Europeans for the first time. It's very, very difficult to, especially with the location that we're talking about, to, to draw that connection to the Vikings specifically. Um, I haven't actually, I don't think either of us have really looked into the Native American texts, um, but it, it, it's an interesting avenue to pursue. And it is, I mean, since there are those little hints, I mean, we do know, what we know is enough to know that we don't know everything. Right, that we do find these tantalizing hints of things like a lumber industry going back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean to Markland. Uh, we do find these references to a bishop who may or may not have traveled to Vinland in the 12th century that we know just enough to say, oh, well, this is possible there. there's a lot more traffic and people just didn't write sagas about all of them uh, yeah. because not every business trip is saga worthy. Uh, right. And, and it's, so, it's so far back. You know, we're talking about uh, late, 10th century, very early 11th century. And so th there aren't any Native American texts that go back quite that far. One of the little things that we do know, one of the sort of the, those tantalizing tidbits is that um, Iceland has long been an object of fascination for people doing research on genetics uh, because it's been such a homogenous island for so long. And one of the things that they've learned is that the DNA of Icelanders contains a small amount of Native American DNA, uh, which suggests that there's either a point of contact which results in several people coming back or an ongoing point of contact which, with an occasional person coming back uh, to make that contribution. I think the but that could, that could just as easily be Greenlanders, right? right of course. Because you have a native population in Greenland right. that they're, they're, they claim are the same as the, the Straylings they saw in, in North America. Just enough to know that we don't know enough. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Ólafur Ríð með Björgum fram Vítið mann, sitt
Hann veilur loginn